The White House says it plans to end the national COVID emergency in May that would affect policies in place since March of 2020. It's Tuesday, January 31st. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the latest on the suicide bombing at a mosque in Pakistan. At least 90 people are dead. Also this hour, a grand jury will decide whether former President Donald Trump broke the law by giving supposed hush money to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Plus, how medical schools are changing the way they teach students about obesity. There's this prevailing bias that this is a soft science. This is really something we don't need to teach or people just need to take better care of themselves. And Pope Francis begins a tour of two African nations in what he calls a pilgrimage of peace. Partly sunny in the 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the West Bank this hour meeting Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Blinken was in Israel yesterday for meetings with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. They touched on Netanyahu's proposed judicial reforms seen as controversial. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports a separate reform effort is being led by Israel's president. Blinken said judicial reforms would need a broad consensus. That doesn't seem to be the case for Netanyahu's proposal, which among other things would allow a bare majority in parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions. Earlier this month, Israeli President Isaac Herzog said, quote, the foundations of Israeli democracy, including the justice system, are sacred and must be defended. Those concerned about Netanyahu's reform plan are hoping Herzog can lead a nonpartisan process to decide which reforms, if any, should be enacted. Netanyahu says the reforms would boost the economy, Critics say the prime minister hopes this proposal will distract people from the fact that he's standing trial on corruption charges. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Ukraine's defense minister is expected in Paris today as Western allies debate whether to donate fighter jets to Ukrainian forces. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports from the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson that President Biden has already hinted that the United States won't provide the jets. Ukraine's defense minister Oleksiy Reznikov is expected to meet his French counterpart Sebastien Lecornu, as well as French President Emmanuel Macron. Macron told French media that France would not donate the F-16 fighters if they would escalate the war or touch Russian soil. In a recent interview to NPR, Reznikov said that it was, quote, absolutely realistic that Ukraine could eventually secure F-16s. Everything what is impossible today, absolutely possible tomorrow. He said Ukraine had successfully argued for other weapons previously thought to be out of reach. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Kherson. The Memphis Police Department says it has suspended two more police officers in connection with the beating death of motorist Tyree Nichols. Five other officers have already been fired. Those five former officers also face murder and other charges in the case. And Shelby County District Attorney Steve Mulroy says his office is not finished looking at whether additional charges could come. We're just looking at everybody, you know, even people that were uh, filing reports afterwards. We're making sure that we have done a comprehensive investigation. Separately, the Memphis City Fire Department says it has fired three emergency response workers who went to the scene where Nichols was on the ground. They were fired for failing to properly assess him. There's a dangerous ice storm going on in parts of the south. The National Weather Service says up to half an inch of ice could coat roads and power lines from Texas to Tennessee. 
This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Legalized sports betting begins this morning in Massachusetts. Casinos will begin taking bets in at about 10. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports it's the first phase of a rollout that will eventually allow people to bet on games using their phones. Massachusetts legalized sports gambling last summer. Boston College finance professor Richard McGowan says there's now a nationwide gold rush around sports betting after New Jersey first legalized it in 2018. You now have almost 30 states with sports gambling. So it's incredible how quickly it's spread. Bets can only be placed at casinos at first. But McGowan expects more participation when the state allows mobile betting. The casinos will all have sites where you can place bets. And in the long run, that is where the money is going to be. Gaming regulators are aiming to launch mobile betting in early March, in time for March Madness. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Delays in the delivery of new MBTA cars is forcing the T to rely on an aging fleet of subway cars. Just 12 of the new 252 redline cars have been delivered so far. Governor Maury Healy was asked by reporters yesterday if the state will revisit the contract with the Chinese company building the cars. At this point, you know, we're still in the early stages of identifying what's happening with respect to existing contracts. And I think we'll make whatever moves are necessary to ensure that we're getting uh, the delivery of, of what we need as quickly as possible. The new redline cars were supposed to be in service by 2026. The Chinese company making the cars hasn't provided a new timeline for delivery. It's taking longer for ambulances to respond to patients in Massachusetts. First responders tell the Boston Globe response times are the slowest they've been since 2014. The delays are being caused by hospital overcrowding and a shortage of EMTs. EMTs also say people who call 911 for mental health support are slowing down service. Members of the state's Republican Party will meet today to choose a chairman. Current chair Jim Lyons is seeking his third two-year term. His supporters say they value his strong conservative beliefs. Others blame him for the party's steep losses during the November election, as well as the party's financial issues. Lyons also faces accusations he violated campaign finance laws by coordinating opposition research into the private life of then-candidate it more Healy. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. Snow mixed with rain for the next few hours. It looks like the inside of a snow globe in downtown Boston. That's supposed to end by mid-morning, and clouds are supposed to gradually clear away. By afternoon, the National Weather Service says it'll be partly sunny today with a high in the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will fall into the teens. Sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 30s. We could be dealing with record cold temperatures by the weekend. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include Paychex, the Paychex team of professionals and compliance specialists work to help businesses automate all HR functions into one platform so that they can instead focus on their business and their employees. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. The Federal Reserve begins a two-day meeting today. The Board of Governors has signaled they plan another interest rate hike, the eighth 
in the space of less than a year. The Fed has been acting against inflation, of course, which now seems to be easing, so have they done enough? Ken Kuttner is a professor of economics at Williams College and a former assistant vice president of research at the Fed. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Nice to be with you, Steve. I'm glad you've been inside the Fed because I, from the outside, see inflation anecdotally. You know, gas prices are up for me and later they're down and lately maybe they've been back up a little bit again. The grocery bill seems high. But now that we are in this uncertain period, how does inflation look to people inside the Fed? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of nail biting going on inside the Fed. Uh, as you say, there's a lot of ups and downs from month to month, but obviously the uh, Fed, are, the Fed people are most concerned with uh, where that's headed, where, where the trend is. And so they're trying to look past those uh, ups and downs in gas prices to figure out what the underlying trend is going to be in inflation. And what does it look like to you? Well, I think uh, to me it looks like it's edging down a bit, but uh, it certainly hasn't fallen back to where the Fed wants it to be. Which is what, 2% is their ideal? Is that right? Yeah, 2%, 2-ish in that range. I think they'd be happy if they uh, got uh, anywhere within uh, shouting distance of 2 at this point. Well, have they done enough in interest rates, or will they after today have done enough, do you think, to crush inflation or at least squeeze it down nearer that 2? Boy, I wish I knew the answer to that. The, uh, in the, you know, in the past, uh, the reason it's tricky is that in the past, in order to bring inflation down, the Fed's had to slow the economy to um, uh, to make it uh, to below its its uh, really its full employment level. Uh, whether that uh, uh, means uh, creating recession or just a period of slow growth is is not clear. But the question is, um, you know, have they? It's more than just bringing it in for a soft landing. They really need to engineer a slowdown. And the question is, how much do they need to do? Number one. And number two, have the rate increases uh, they've they done so far enough to engineer just the right amount of slowdown without overdoing it? You just said a really interesting thing. You said the Fed would need to slow down the economy to the point where it gets below full employment, meaning, to put it ruthlessly, more of us need to be laid off for the economy to slow down. Isn't employment still very, very high despite a lot of high-profile layoffs? Yes, employment is still very, very high, and that's one of the things that's been a bit of a uh, puzzle in the current, uh, the way the economy's developed. Uh, some, uh, some indicators looking, uh, are looking very bad, where, where's, employ where's employment and GDP growth continue to be solid. I, I want to ask a couple of follow-ups about that, about different things that, that economists and experts have said. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, who famously warned about inflation before it got quite so bad, gave a mathematical formula sometime back. He said, look, if you got 6% inflation, you're going to need interest rates of at least 6%, maybe a good deal higher than that to choke it off. Is that the way the math works, which would imply, to me anyway, as an outsider, the Fed would have to keep raising rates more and more? That's exactly right. And uh, what Larry is saying is you need to get a, a positive inflation-adjusted interest rate. So even if the Fed raises the interest rate to 475 uh, tomorrow, uh, if, the, if the rate of inflation is running about the, at that same rate, you're still talking about a zero inflation-adjusted rate, which, is, which in the past has really not been enough to, uh, to create a, uh, a slowdown in the economy. We have to get to the point, right, where it is so expensive to borrow money that people just do less economic activity, and you're telling me it's not quite there. Uh, at least by uh, the standards of historical benchmarks, we're not quite there yet. Well, let's talk through another thing. Mark Zandi, the economist, was on the program the other day and gave us, I don't know if optimistic is the word, he expected a rough year, 2023 to be a rough year, but he thought it was now likely that the United States could avoid a recession. In other words, that the Fed would not have to raise interest rates so dramatically that it would turn us negative. Um, granting that you can't predict the future, what are your thoughts about that? Well, again, it's a question of, uh, 
Does it actually have to be negative growth or does it have to be a bona fide recession or can just a, a period of somewhat slower than normal growth do the trick? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. In the past, uh, bringing inflation down has required uh, some, uh, a bit of a dip in the economy, but that may have changed. And I, I'll try to be optimistic along with, along with Zandi on that. Do you think Wall Street is optimistic or has confidence in Jerome Powell, whatever he may do? Uh, uh, that's a good question. Does he have uh, confidence in Jerome Powell and his colleagues? I think for the most part they do. Uh, they think they've got a little bit nervous of the Fed having uh, let things get out of control this far. But I think since then the Fed has done a good job of trying to reestablish its credibility. Ken Kuttner at Williams College, thanks so much. You're welcome. Nice to be with you. French unions have called for a second day of nationwide strikes today. They're pressuring the government of Emmanuel Macron to drop its planned changes to retirement, especially the plan to raise the minimum retirement age, which allows a full pension from 62 to 64. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports the proposed change is especially unpopular outside of big cities. The Burgundy countryside is full of medieval churches, stone villages, and hardworking people like Annick Riboulet. She's a 71-year-old retiree who enjoys spending time with her grandchildren. I started working at the age of 14, she says, as a cashier in a bakery. Riboulet never stopped, even while raising four children, until she retired at the age of 58. She had what is known as a long career. Under the proposed changes, people like Riboulet would still be able to retire early because nobody will have to work more than 44 years. But Riboulet's son-in-law, 47-year-old Fabien Stéphane, who works in a slaughterhouse, would have to work two extra years until 64. It's extremely physical work getting these huge animals through the process, he says. No one will be able to do two more years under this reform. No one. Mathieu Gallard is a pollster with Ipsos in Paris. He says 70% of the French oppose the overhaul of the pension system. That's up 10 points from September. Gallard says respondents do not believe the pension system needs fixing. It had a surplus in 2021. And he says the French public thinks the burden will not be shared equally. Emmanuel Macron has been seen as a president for successful people, I would say. And they tend to think that this reform will be a gain for, you know, for professionals and managers, but not for the working class. The government consulted with unions over the draft proposal. It has provisions for those with physically difficult careers and night work. It raises the minimum retirement amount to 1,200 euros a month. And yet people are fixated on the retirement age. But Prime Minister Elizabeth Borne says working until 64 is non-negotiable because workers need to pay into the system longer to keep it viable. Train conductor and union steward Axel Persson told French TV people are angry and there are many more buses ready to transport protesters from the suburbs into Paris today. Parliament began debating the retirement bill Monday. Without the absolute majority in Parliament he once had, analysts say Macron will need every vote he can find. And unions say they're committed to fighting for the duration, but they'll need to keep the public on board. Back in Burgundy, 75-year-old Michel Zanotti is waiting tables in his restaurant. He says he feels great and has no desire to retire. We live longer and there's no more money in the coffers, so maybe we do need to find a balance, he says. 
Jusqu'à 60, ça commençait à compter quand même. <rire> 81-year-old Pierre Schlevy shuffles up to the bar with a cane in each hand. He says he was happy to retire at 60. That was thanks to France's first socialist president, François Mitterrand, who in 1981 lowered the retirement age from 65 to 60 in one fell swoop. Since then, nearly every president has been trying to get the French to work a little longer. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Burgundy. Some of the earliest atrocities in Russia's war in Ukraine came in the city of Bucha. Now the mayor of that town is in Washington asking for help to rebuild. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Mayor Anatoly Fedoruk calls this a war of civilizations, one that Ukrainians are now determined to win with help from the West. And he says that means holding Russians to account. Just like Nazism was prosecuted after the Second World War, Russian fascists, or Russists as he calls them, have to be brought to justice. He told the Wilson Center for Scholars, a Washington think tank, that 419 Ukrainian civilians were killed when the Russians occupied Bucha. The images of dead bodies littering the streets galvanize world opinion, says Mark Green, a former Trump administration official who now runs the Wilson Center. And it is one of the ironies of this war that the very brutality that Putin tried to use to scare people, to beat them into submission, actually had the reverse impact of awakening the world, of bringing the world together. He says it also accelerated and expanded U.S. support for Ukraine. Now some lawmakers are calling for more oversight to that aid. Brock Bierman, who runs a private aid group, Friends of Ukraine, is working with the mayor of Bucha to try to ease those concerns. They're not looking for a handout. They're looking for a hand up. They need partnerships. We have partnered with them in an equal way to rebuild a school to provide assistance at the local levels, rebuild playgrounds. But with Russia continuing to bomb Ukrainian infrastructure, the costs are mounting. Mayor Fedoruk blames the Russians for $1.5 billion in damages in Bucha alone. We are obliged to demonstrate, uh, first of all, to ourselves and, and for the whole world, that Bucha can be like a phoenix uh, to rise from the dust. He's vowing to rebuild, but says Ukrainians won't forgive what Russia has done. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, attempts to change the way doctors in training learn about obesity. It's one of the most prevalent chronic diseases, but traditionally, medical schools don't spend a lot of time teaching about it. It's F19. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. 
I'm Robin Young. An armed standoff 30 years ago between federal agents and religious fanatics at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, led to four dead ATF agents and a fiery disaster that killed over 70 Davidians, including 20 children. The new book, Waco Rising, draws the line from Waco to the January 6th insurrection. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We'll have a messy mix of rain and snow flurries for the next few hours. Then overcast skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day with a high of 36. It may also get pretty windy. Tonight, mostly cloudy and temperatures fall to around 19 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny with a high of only 31. And you may want to start bracing yourself for sub-zero temperatures later this week. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston at 720. Today on the Common WBWAR's daily podcast, I stopped by to tell host Daryl C. Murphy about Boston's new attempt to increase opportunities for economic growth within communities of color, starting with Mattapan. That's on The Common, wherever you get your podcasts. It's 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. Obesity is the most common chronic disease in the U.S. It's hard to overstate what it does to patients in the healthcare system. And while it's also linked to more than 200 other chronic conditions, doctors are taught very little about obesity in medical school and even less about how to help those who have it. As a result, they often perpetuate misconceptions about it, as NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports. Medical student Tong Yan grew up in a Chinese-American family that revered food, but thought little of those who carry excess weight. Definitely there was like an implicit fattest kind of perspective, you know, like small comments that are made about people's weight. Also implied with that that people who are obese are lazy and not motivated. Such notions unwittingly influenced him. Then Yan attended an educational summit on obesity in medical school at George Washington University. It was there he took an implicit bias test that identified his preference for thinner people. Patients shared how discrimination in exam rooms affected them. And Yan learned how factors other than food and exercise, things like genetics, brain chemistry, stress level, and community design contribute significantly to the disease. I think it is a start of sort of a re-education because whether or not we talk about it, like we absorb all the messages about what it means to be called obese, what it means to have a larger body since the time that we're very small. But obesity education is lacking. Doctors traditionally learn nothing about obesity, not in medical school or residency. Scott Cahan teaches at medical schools and directs a clinic called the National Center for Weight and Wellness. What we learned is essentially just Obesity is very prevalent. You're going to see it in lots of your patients, and it's really important for people to eat less and exercise more. That's pretty much it. Nor has the curriculum kept pace with scientific understanding of obesity, which has transformed in recent decades. 
It's now understood to be a complex disease involving many of the body's organs. Myriad factors like genetics, lack of sleep, and even weight stigma can contribute to weight gain. Treating it, therefore, often requires more than just restricting or burning calories. Research on new and promising, if very expensive, medications that act on the brain underscores how obesity is not just a disease of the body or simply a matter of willpower. Yet today's standard medical training reflects little of that. One 2020 survey found medical schools spend, on average, 10 hours on obesity education. Half of schools say increasing that is a low priority or not a priority at all. Robert Kushner calls that insufficient. He's a professor of medical education at Northwestern University and co-authored the survey. He says the problem perpetuates itself. There aren't a lot of people trained in obesity. If you weren't trained yourself in medical school and you didn't take it upon yourself to learn about it, you're not going to be in a position to be an informed expert faculty member. Plus, teaching tends to focus on organ systems like cardiology or endocrinology. But obesity crosses many of those without fitting into one discipline. And, Kushner says, There's this prevailing bias that this is a soft science. This is really something we don't need to teach or people just need to take better care of themselves. The result, he says, is most physicians aren't equipped to help patients with obesity. That's something Tong Yan witnessed firsthand. Yan, now in his fourth year, recalls a supervising doctor talking to a patient with headaches related, in part, to obesity. The doctor was a little bit behind and sort of frustrated. We're like, you need to get out and exercise. Can't just sit around and reprimanding. Like, don't you know this is an issue? Jan recoiled. He knew that ran counter to what he'd learned in obesity and bias training. But the doctor's seniority scared both Jan and the patient into silence. I'm ashamed to say that I, I didn't really say much. It was just an observation that left a big impact. The impact is deep for patients like Patty Neese. In 64 years, she's never been free from the stigma of living in a large body. She gets catcalled compared to cows or whales, insults that amplify her own savage inner voice. I had sort of become my own worst enemy, my own worst bully. You know, I've won awards as an attorney, and I've been active in community, and nothing overcame all the weight bias and stigma I had faced. But, she says, the biggest clinical damage has come from doctors themselves. Several years ago, Nice visited an orthopedist for hip pain. He just lectured me. He never really ever listened to what was going on with me. So many medical professionals think that people that carry excess weight don't know their bodies. Yet I probably know my body much better because I think about it a lot. I think about my weight a lot. Without examining or even touching her, the doctor blamed the pain on her weight. And he said, see, you're even crying because of your weight, which was so far from the truth. I was crying because of him. I didn't want to see another physician in my life. When she finally did, the root cause turned out to be a severe curve in her spine. Nice felt spurned for her weight by others, too. dietitians, mammographers, rheumatologists, then avoided care. Kofi Essel is a pediatrician and nutritionist. He says that kind of alienation is especially common in Black and Latino communities where obesity rates run higher, yet people are diagnosed and treated less often. Why? Because most of us in medical education come from middle to upper income backgrounds. So there is oftentimes economic discordance with many of our patients. Essel says the answer, again, lies in more training in obesity. Not just the science of it, but the compassion necessary for patients to respond. 
He directs the Obesity Summit at George Washington University and says it transforms students. Their new awarenesses, their new knowledge, their new attitude, their new behaviors is night and day. Student Tong Yan agrees. He hopes to become a family physician in an underserved community. I'm particularly motivated to like try to improve these kind of skills for the sake of my patients in the future. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up here on Morning Edition, the death toll has risen to more than 90 people killed in a suicide bomber attack on a Pakistani mosque. And Pope Francis is visiting Africa in an attempt to bridge relations between the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. It's 729. Follow the news throughout the day with WBUR. We're 90.9 on the dial, or you can visit WBUR.org. There's also the new and improved WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. Family-owned and committed to sustainability, community, and quality. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the Middle East, where he's meeting today with the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. This follows Blinken's talks yesterday with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu amid a spike in violence between Israel and the Palestinians. Authorities in Pakistan say the death toll from yesterday's bombing in a mosque in Peshawar is up to at least 95. Dozens more were wounded. That explosion went off inside a high-security police compound. It's still not clear who was responsible. Today's the deadline for seven states in the western U.S. to reach agreement on a plan to share water from the Colorado River. Otherwise, the federal government will implement its own plan. Yesterday, six of the states offered a proposal. Alex Hager with member station KUNC says California did not sign on. California uses more Colorado River water than any other state, and their water rights are some of the oldest. So that means that when there's a shortage, they are going to be the last in line to lose their water. California grows a lot of the country's food. That takes a lot of water. It also has growing, thirsty cities. This proposal would cut back on the total amount of water that California receives. Uh, They responded by putting out a statement calling it inconsistent with the law of the river, and they said they would put out their own proposal for water cutbacks. This is NPR News. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
There is no school again today in Woburn. The teacher strike there is entering its second day. They say they've been without a contract since August. Woburn teachers are getting support from neighboring communities. The head of the Malden Education Association showed her support for the strike at a rally yesterday in Woburn. Deb Giswaldo says the fact that striking is illegal for Massachusetts public school teachers gives districts the upper hand in negotiations. I think that's, you know, part of why you're seeing this wave is because everyone's sick of going for six months, a year, possibly two, with an expired contract. It's, it's not okay. It's disrespectful. The Boston Globe reports the city got a court injunction to stop the strike, but teachers plan on going forward anyway. Mayor Michelle Wu is one step closer to following up on her promise to end urban renewal in Boston. She sent in a petition yesterday that would end the city's ability to take land it claims is blighted. Her new plan would also protect community benefits like affordable housing and open space. A cap on the number of retail marijuana stores in Northampton could go into effect soon. As Alden Bourne reports, several city councilors have raised concerns about whether a loophole on that cap could be misused. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera didn't support the cap of 12 stores, but it could have enough votes in the city council to survive her possible veto. City Councilor Stan Moulton voted for the limit, saying he was concerned about the impact of pot shops on the city's youth. The ordinance provides an exemption for social equity applicants. Moulton says he remains concerned about the possibility of having a social equity applicant go through the process, obtain the uh, host community agreement and the license, and then turn around and sell it to a an out-of-town corporate retailer. The Northampton Mayor's Office says it currently has no request for host community agreements from social equity applicants. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and Nick Stone, authors of How to Be a Young Anti-Racist, Tuesday, February 7th. Tickets at portersquarebooks.com. Celtics interim head coach Joe Mazzula is headed to the All-Star Game. He'll be one of two leaders for the game next month because Boston has the best record in the Eastern Conference. Mazzula is the first Celtics head coach to lead an All-Star team since Brad Stevens did it in 2017. Snow flurries and rain for the next few hours. That should taper off by mid-morning and cloudy skies will gradually clear for a mostly sunny afternoon That'll be windy and in the mid-30s. Tonight it gets really cold. We'll fall as low as 19 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny and low 30s. Right now it's 32 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. A photo on social media shows people standing inside a mosque in Pakistan. You see rubble on the floor. You see dust in the air. And you see a massive opening where the outside wall used to be. A suicide bomber struck that mosque and killed at least 
95 people by the latest count. NPR's Dia Hadid is in Pakistan's capital, Islamabad. Hey there, Dia. Hi, Steve. How did this happen? Well, it appears there was some failure by security forces. This blast occurred in an area of Peshawar. It's a city in northwestern Pakistan. But this was an area that was thick with security because it has so many sensitive government installations. And if this was a suicide bombing, as many suspect it was, that bomber would have passed at least two checkpoints, including one outside the mosque. And a senior official told local media today that at least 22 pounds of explosives were used in that attack. Mm. Uh, You mentioned 95 people were killed. At least two dozen of them were police officers. And they have been under attack now for many months. So this is a situation where they could have expected an attack, where they seem to have prepared for a possibility of attack with checkpoints, and yet were unable to stop the attack. Is there any idea who succeeded in getting around that security? Well, at least one group claim responsibility. They're an offshoot of a Pakistani militant group that's loyal to the Taliban, and they've been behind a growing number of attacks in Pakistan over the past year and a half, really ever since the Taliban seized power of neighbouring Afghanistan. And those attacks began in the border areas of Pakistan, but they seem to be penetrating deeper and deeper into the country. Now there's concern for Islamabad, Yesterday, police went on high alert. Snipers were deployed on rooftops. Vehicles were being stopped and searched. And already since uh, Christmas, um, there was a warning that militants were trying to bomb the Marriott Hotel in Islamabad. Since then, there's been armed guards posted outside cafes where wealthy foreigners and Pakistanis uh, like to congregate. Even the farmer's market has been called off since December because vendors can't guarantee security. I feel the need to just explain for people who don't follow Pakistan every day. There's this group, the Taliban, which rules Afghanistan right now. And then there's also a Pakistani branch of the Taliban, which at least in theory is a separate group, but ideologically similar. And here they are attacking targets inside Pakistan. What is the government saying and doing about this? Well, I should be even clearer, Steve, because this can get quite unwieldy that the group that claim responsibility today is an offshoot of that offshoot. Okay. It can really do your head in, and that's partly why security here is so complicated, because Pakistani authorities aren't just dealing with one militant group, they're dealing with a fractured group that often competes against each other. Now, the government has promised an investigation, uh, but it's this is just one of many crises that it's dealing with right now. In fact, today there's a delegation of the International Monetary Fund that's expected in Pakistan, and they're here to negotiate the release of more than a billion dollars of a bailout that's been stalled for months. Um, and it was stalled because the finance minister had refused to accede to IMF demands until last week when the country veered towards economic defaults. Um, so the IMF is in town. This is, a, this is a lot going on, and you can get a sense of the pressure on this country. It's a lot. Consider that just last, last Monday there was a nationwide blackout. Last Thursday, the local currency lost 10% of its value in just a few hours. Just yesterday, more than 90 people were killed in a bombing. Pakistanis have to deal with a lot. And Pierce Dia Hadid is in Islamabad. Thanks for your insights, as always. Pleasure.
Pope Francis begins his much-anticipated trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan today. For the Vatican, this trip is seen as an opportunity to focus on the long-drawn-out conflicts that have torn these two countries apart. But it also is an acknowledgment of the importance that Africa plays in the Catholic Church and its future. Our correspondent, Emmanuel Akinwotu, joins us from Lagos, Nigeria. So how important is this visit for the Vatican and for the Pope? Good morning and hugely, you know, this is where the church sees much of its future. 20% of the world's 1.4 billion Catholics are here on the continent and it's the fastest growing part of the Catholic church. And, and as it grows, it's going to have a greater sway on its identity. You know, anyone who's attended mass in the West and here in many parts of Africa knows that Catholicism here usually brings a different energy and sense of spirituality. Then specifically with the Democratic Republic of Congo, close to half of its people, 95 million people, are Catholics. And for many people, the church functions like the state. DRC has the highest number of Catholic health centers in Africa, and its bishops have a lot of social and political influence. So the conflicts there and in South Sudan are really at the core of this visit, and the Pope has called this his pilgrimage of peace. So what kind of an impact do you think his presence will likely have on both countries? I mean, it's a box office moment. Um, you know, thousands of people have been gradually arriving into the capital from other cities and townships to see him and hopefully attend mass. Um, his trip to the DRC will be the first papal visit since Pope John Paul in 1985. Uh, the country was still called Zaire then and run by a dictator. Um, so it's been a long time. He, he's going to be meeting victims of violence from Eastern DRC on Wednesday. Uh, and that really shines a light on the conflict there. The Tutsi-led M23 rebel group have been leading this bloody offensive and it risks sparking a war between Rwanda and the DRC. Then for South Sudan, it's going to be the first ever papal visit um, to a really young country where Catholics are about 40% of people there. Um, South Sudan became independent in 2011 um, after like, years of conflict. Then there was a civil war and despite a 2018 peace deal, there's still a lot of unrest and a huge refugee crisis of about 2 million refugees. The Pope uh, lately has made some statements that have been seen as, as progressive or more progressive than normal for a Pope. Um, how will those statements be taken in, uh, in Africa? Um, it's complicated. You know, obviously, as you said, just last week, Pope Francis said that laws which criminalize homosexuality were, were unjust. Um, and, you know, but the, the African church is, is more socially conservative on, on certain issues, such as around sexuality and divorce. And broadly, the clergy in Africa are not as fond of him, maybe as they were of the more conservative predecessor, Pope Benedict. But at the same time, his more left-wing messages on the poor, the marginalized, on capitalism, on plundering mineral resources in Africa, these things resonate hugely here and are part of what make him to be more beloved. That's NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu in Lagos, Nigeria. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, a grand jury is weighing whether former President Donald Trump broke the law with payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels in 2016. And in our next hour, the thinking behind the Biden administration's decision to end the COVID public health emergency in May.
In your forecast, take an umbrella as you head out today. We'll have a mix of rain and snow for the next few hours, but the clouds are supposed to gradually clear away for a mostly sunny day this afternoon. We'll also have some high winds and temperatures will be in the mid-30s. Tonight, cloudy in the upper teens. Tomorrow, sunny and around 30. It's 32 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Now in business news, GE Healthcare is releasing its first-ever earnings report. It was spun off from its Boston-based conglomerate less than a month ago. The company says it earned just over $18 billion in total revenue in 2022. That's a growth of about 7 percent. A Texas-based solar energy company plans to open a new distribution warehouse in Mansfield. Green Tech Renewables says the facility will open in March. The Sun Chronicle reports the branch will service customers in southeastern Massachusetts, the Cape, and Rhode Island. Green Tech already has a Massachusetts facility in Auburn. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Court records document a fact about the past of former President Trump. Someone paid hush money to cover up his relationship with an adult film star. Trump denied any wrongdoing in the payoff to Stormy Daniels, but it seems prosecutors are taking a second look and they're presenting evidence about the case to a Manhattan grand jury. Grand jury proceedings are secret, but a person familiar with them spoke with NPR's Andrea Bernstein, who's on the line. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, So uh, this payoff took place, but what would the crime be here? So the New York crime that they're looking at is falsifying business records, which can be an e-felony here. As many people recall, early in Trump's presidency, it emerged that his former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, had made a deal with an adult film actor, Stormy Daniels, who said she'd had an extramarital affair with Trump. She would get $130,000, and in exchange, she agreed not to discuss her story with reporters. This all happened in October of 2016, right before the election. Cohen ultimately pleaded guilty and went to prison for violating campaign finance law, And he said at the time of his guilty plea that he had done this at the direction of the candidate, that he'd paid the money and arranged to be reimbursed. Trump's company recorded the payments as legal fees, Hmm. which they clearly were not. Okay, so that is where the crime would be, would be lying about what this was. But let's talk about the, the timing. Cohen pleaded guilty years ago. Why is the grand jury looking at Trump now? Well, it has taken a circuitous route. 
The Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, isn't commenting, but we do know this. When Cohen pleaded guilty in the federal case, the U.S. Justice Department had determined it would not indict a sitting president. So the Manhattan DA, and actually a different DA at the time, opened its own investigation. Ultimately, that one focused on tax fraud. And of course, last year, Trump's chief financial officer pleaded guilty, and Trump's company was convicted at trial of scheming to pay its employees with untaxed benefits like like cars and apartments. In the last year, local prosecutors seem to have come back around to the hush money payments, and a person familiar with the investigation tells us that's what the new grand jury is looking at. Is the investigation complicated at all by the fact that Trump is running for president again? Well, not really legally. And people familiar with the investigation tell me that it's actually a pretty simple case compared to, for example, the tax fraud case doesn't have years of business records, tax filings, there are fewer witnesses. So it could be not long if the grand jury decides to indict. And if that happens, yes, Donald Trump, candidate for president, would have to show up in criminal court in Manhattan to enter a plea. But it's a unique case, and there could be pitfalls. Even if he should avoid legal jeopardy in this case, isn't he facing a couple of other trials in New York? Yes, and I should say Trump isn't commenting. He denied wrongdoing yesterday on social media. He called this the greatest witch hunt of all time. But there are two cases, two trials that he is facing in New York this year. One involves the uh, columnist E. Jean Carroll, who is suing Trump for defamation after she alleged that he had raped her in the 1990s. He denies wrongdoing. And the other is a big case by the Manhattan DA, who says that Trump engaged in a decade-long scheme to lie about property values. She wants $250 million, and she essentially wants to shut down Trump's business in New York. NPR's Andrea Bernstein, thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Well, I'm good. Thanks. Do you want to make a bet? I would love to. I hear that you're making a field trip today. So Walt Wuthman is for us, WBUR reporter Walter Wuthman. Today is the day that a handful of in-person casinos in Massachusetts allow sports betting Mm -hmm. for the first time. So the first bets can be placed at about 10 a.m. this morning. Walter Wuthman will be at the Encore. We'll be looking at how that works there. And then we have two experts who we've been talking to really throughout this whole regulatory process, Rupa, who will join us to talk about, okay, so what does this mean now? What can we expect? Do we have sufficient safeguards in place? Mm -hmm. Where are the risks? What's the difference between right now, which is you can only place a bet with cash Mm -hmm. in person and when online betting. That's a big change. It's a huge change, Rupa, and it has huge implications for everything from revenue to families to gambling addiction. So it's here. It's starting, and we will mark the moment and ask some questions on the show today. That's great. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, there are so many commercials this morning. No, but I will watch. That's a great point. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.50.
Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Are people fundamentally good or evil? That's at the center of veneer theory, the idea that without the thin veneer of law, order, and authority, human beings revert to selfish beasts. Ramtin Arablouei and Rund Abdel Fattah are the hosts of NPR's history podcast, Throughline. They tell us how a famous psychology experiment from the 1970s that's been used to uphold this view may have some holes in it. These are not prisoners, and this is not a prison. They are college students, and they were part of an astonishing experiment. The Stanford Prison Experiment is the most famous experiment in the history of psychology. This is Rutger Bregman, Dutch historian and author of the book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. And it was done by a young psychologist named Philip Zimbardo, and he had a pretty simple idea. He recruited 24 students, and he said to 12 of them, you're going to be the guards, and to the other 12, you're going to be the prisoners. And so he put these prisoners in a fake prison in the basement of Stanford University. Zimbardo and his team wanted to see what happened when people either became guards or prisoners. The prisoners' rights movement had started the decade before, and Zimbardo wanted to show how the U.S. prison system was failing when it came to abuse of prisoners. There, they were led to a simulated prison block consisting of three small cells, a narrow hallway, and a closet designed for solitary confinement. This would be their entire world for two weeks. The experiment was filmed by Zimbardo and his research team. And on the first day, it was mostly uneventful. The students playing prisoners were taken and put into their cells. But then, on the second day of the experiment... Things began to unravel. There was a very sharp change in the whole nature of what was happening in that prison. There was a rebellion among the inmates. They refused to eat. They barricaded themselves in their cells. They started ripping off their numbers started screaming out obscenities at the guards. And that was countered by the guards with fire extinguishers. And after that, the guards, you know, basically did all kinds of terrible things. They tried to break their subordinates. The guards then began to escalate their use of power. Some of them had prisoners clean out toilet bowls with their bare hands to do things which were really degrading and humiliating. And the prisoners did it without complaining, just did it because this is what they had to do. So that's one of the reasons that the Stanford Prison Experiment became so famous, because if you just look at the video of it, it's, it's very, very powerful. And you think, what happened to these guys? And the story, as it's been told for, well, half a century, was that these guards, they initially described themselves as hippies, pacifists, right, who would never hurt a fly. But then in the context of being in that prison and being handed this power over the prisoners, 
they turn into monsters. So it's a very powerful illustration of veneer theory, right? These boys showed who they really were once they were in that situation. The results of the Stanford prison experiment made it into almost all psychology textbooks. And it's essential takeaway that, given the right context, human beings will be quick to act brutally, was often accepted uncritically. The way I see it is that they were just telling a very old story with basically the same message. People deep down are just rotten. We are rotten to the core. But when Rutger was writing his book, he wanted to find out whether anyone had actually really looked into the Stanford prison experiment. And that's when he stumbled upon this study published in French. It's a study by a, a sociologist called Thibault Le Texier. It was first published in 2018. This is astounding. He was the first one to go into the archives of the Stanford prison experiment to study what really happened. Le Texier got on a plane and flew to California, went to Stanford, and did just that. And what he found was really, really shocking. Le Texier spent hours and hours looking through videos and documents that showed... These students were being pressured all the time to behave as nasty and sadistic as possible. And they weren't all up for it. Some student guards said things like, If it were up to me, I would just, you know, sit here and play cards and make music together with the inmates. But that's obviously not the result that Phillips and Bardo wanted. Um, so he, together with one of his co-researcher, a man named David Jeffy, they basically pulled a huge amount of tricks to convince these students to start behaving in a really terrible way. David Jaffe, Zimbardo's co-researcher, also played the role of prison warden. In one of the recordings from the Stanford archives, you can hear him pushing one of the guards in the experiment to be tough on the inmates. But we really want to get you active and involved because the guards have to know that every guard is going to be what we call it. Jaffe tells the participant he has to be a tough guard, to which the participant responds, I'm not too well, tough. You have to kind of try and get it in you. Well, I don't, I don't know about that. Zimbardo has acknowledged that there were problems with the methodology of his study, but he defends the study's conclusions and says the experiment was a cautionary tale of what would happen to anyone if we underestimate the power of social roles and systemic structures. Why do you think this study has been so persistent? Like, even though people have clearly debunked it, why do people still believe in it? It's just exciting. It's a fantastic, compelling story. There's this concept in medicine, you know, the, the notion of a placebo. You know, you give someone a pill, and if only the person believes that that pill will cure him, then, you know, it, it may actually do. We humans, we become the stories that we tell ourselves. Our stories are never just stories. They are self-fulfilling prophecies. That was historian Rutger Bregman speaking with Throughlines Ramtin Arablouei and Rund Abdel Fattah. You can listen to the whole episode wherever you get your podcast. And by the way, Throughline reached out to Philip Zimbardo for comment, and he responded by saying he was too unwell to participate.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The rain and snow combo we're seeing at this hour should dissipate by mid-morning. Then high winds will move clouds out. And by afternoon, we should have mostly clear skies and temperatures in the mid-30s. The clouds will return tonight as temperatures fall into the teens. Colder tomorrow, right around 30 degrees, but it'll be sunny. It's 32 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Two more officers have been suspended from duty in Memphis as the fallout continues from the brutal police beating death of Tyree Nichols. It's Tuesday, January 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, the Biden administration has announced that it will officially end the national COVID public health emergency in May, triggering a cascade of policy changes. Also, the seven states that share the Colorado River have until today to agree to voluntary water cutbacks or have federal cuts imposed on them. And this hour... Lurch, where are you, Lurch? It's me, Wednesday. We remember actress Lisa Loring, who played Wednesday in the 1960s TV series, The Addams Family. She dined on Saturday at the age of 64. Mostly sunny, windy, and mid-30s today. Get ready for sub-zero temperatures later this week. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Wall Street is preparing for the Federal Reserve to announce another hike in interest rates this week. This is part of the central bank's ongoing effort to bring down inflation in the U.S. economy. As Steve Beckner reports, the Fed kicks off its latest two-day policy meeting today. The Fed raised the key federal funds rate four and a quarter percentage points last year, including four straight three-quarter point hikes. Last month, it slowed the pace to a half point, and the question is whether Chairman Jerome Powell and his colleagues will continue the deceleration of rate hikes tomorrow. With inflation moderating and the economy slowing, Wall Street is looking for a quarter-point move. Steve Beckner reporting. The brutal beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police officers has revived calls for Congress to once again consider police reform. But as NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, the likelihood remains slim of any legislation making it to President Biden's desk. Plans are underway for Congressional Black Caucus Chair Stephen Horsford to meet with President Biden on police reform, an issue he wants Biden to address in his upcoming State of the Union. Previous congressional negotiations on police reform broke down in 2021 after months of bipartisan talks. Still, the Nevada Democrat said he remains hopeful lawmakers can make inroads. Congress and the president have a role to play. And anyone who says they don't is abdicating their responsibility to keep our community safe. 
but in divided government, passing legislation in both chambers remains an uphill battle. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, the Capitol. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank. This follows his meeting yesterday with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Blinken's trip to the Middle East comes as violence between Palestinians and Israelis flares. He's urging calm on both sides, but it's not clear how much success he will have. Authorities in Pakistan say at least 95 people have been killed in a suspected suicide bombing that hit a mosque yesterday. NPR's Dia Hadid reports the death toll is expected to rise. The blast was so powerful that it brought down a wall of the building. Rescuers are still digging through the rubble of the mosque to find casualties. A militant group inspired by the Taliban claimed responsibility. There's been an uptick in attacks in Pakistan since the Taliban seized power of neighbouring Afghanistan. Pakistan accuses the Taliban of harbouring groups conducting these cross-border attacks. But there appears to have been security breaches at Pakistan's end too. The bomber struck in a heavily guarded part of the northwestern city of Peshawar and he should have passed at least two checkpoints to reach the mosque. The government says it will investigate the incident once a mourning period is over. Dear Hadid, NPR News. Islamabad. This is NPR. Train, plane and automobile traffic will be disrupted in France today. That's as labor unions call for a second round of nationwide strikes. Members are protesting against President Emmanuel Macron's retirement overhaul proposal. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports this is becoming a standoff between the French government and the public. French unions hope to have an even bigger turnout than two weeks ago when more than a million people took to the streets nationwide. Train conductor and union organizer Axel Persson told French TV there are many more buses ready to transport protesters from the suburbs into Paris today. Workers at oil refineries and power stations will also protest, and half the nation's teachers are expected to walk off the job. At stake is the minimum retirement age. Macron wants to raise it from 62 to 64. Polls indicate some 70 percent of the French are against the reform for now. Opponents say there are better ways to buttress the pension system than making people work longer, which they say penalizes those in blue-collar jobs. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. A New York City prosecutor has convened a new grand jury. Members will investigate whether former President Donald Trump allegedly paid hush money to an adult film actress in 2016. This was allegedly to stop her from publicly revealing she had had an affair with him. Trump has said he has done nothing wrong. Trump's former personal lawyer has pleaded guilty to making the hush money payments at Trump's direction. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Legalized sports betting begins in just a few hours in Massachusetts. The state's three casinos will begin taking bets at 10 a.m. Governor Maura Healey was asked about the kickoff yesterday and had only this to say. Looking forward to implementation. Looking forward to more revenue. The casinos that'll take in the bets and the revenue expressed more excitement. Adam Frenier reports. MGM Springfield will have one of the sports books up and running, which is expected to generate about 20 jobs. The legislature approved sports betting last summer, and since then the State Gaming Commission has raced to draft regulations and approve licenses to take bets. During a recent press conference, MGM Resorts President and CEO Bill Hornbuckle indicated Springfield Mayor Dominic Sarno will have the honor of placing the first bet. I believe, Mr. Mayor, you will 
you will actually make the first bet. Yeah, maybe I'll win. Hornbuckle then went on to say, But we're very excited by that. I think it's a great opportunity for the property. I think it's ultimately a great opportunity for the state. Those looking to bet on sporting events on their phones or computers will have to wait until at least early March as the Gaming Commission continues the rollout of the new industry. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Freinier. Worcester City officials are meeting today to talk about issues with the city's police department. City councilors are expected to discuss the status of the department's racial equity audit. They want to know why it's taking longer to complete than other city audits. Councilors are also set to discuss body cameras. A report showing results from a 2019 test trial of the technology hasn't been released yet. Admissions have been frozen at Lemonster Nursing Home after a COVID outbreak and the deaths of two residents. A so-called rapid response team from the state was sent in to help the life care center of Lemonster 10 days ago. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. State health officials say 50 patients and more than 30 staff members at Life Care Center tested COVID positive. A Life Care spokesperson says 90% of the patients were asymptomatic and most staff members have since returned to work. Dr. Asif Merchant, chief of geriatrics at Newton Wellesley Hospital, said despite the outbreak, there have been improvements at nursing homes since the start of the pandemic, including more testing, vaccines, and medications. Even though their number of infections are a lot, There isn't that many severe diseases or hospitalizations due to COVID or deaths. The state health team will continue to monitor the facility. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The snow flurries that have been falling this morning seem to be tapering off. The cloudy skies will clear and we'll have a partly sunny day with a high in the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will fall into the teens. Sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 30s. We could be dealing with record cold temperatures by the weekend. It's 32 degrees in Boston at 808. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with the Israeli Prime Minister yesterday and has met today with the Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas. They met in Ramallah in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, and the location is part of the story here. The West Bank is where the Israeli military has been carrying out near-daily raids. It says targets Palestinian militants, although the raids have often killed civilians. And it is also where some Palestinians cheered after a deadly attack on Israelis outside a synagogue on Friday. NPR's Daniel Estrin is covering this story. And Daniel, what can the U.S. do or say in a situation like this? Well, Blinken has called for urgent steps to calm tensions. What steps exactly, we don't know. Uh, Not the steps Palestinians and Israelis have taken so far. After a deadly raid in the Israeli raid in the West Bank last week, the Palestinian Authority called off security cooperation with Israeli security. Blinken doesn't like that. He wants them to cooperate. Uh, Then, after a deadly Palestinian attack in Jerusalem, Israel vowed to strengthen West Bank settlements. Blinken doesn't like that either. The U.S. opposes settlement expansion in the West Bank because uh, Blinken says it's important to preserve the possibility to create a Palestinian state in that territory. So he's making these suggestions. People may not necessarily follow them. And now he meets with Mahmoud Abbas. What is it that Abbas wants from Blinken? 
He wants a lot, but I don't think he's expecting Blinken to offer much. I mean, Abbas wants to continue to seek justice for Palestinians internationally through the International Criminal Court, through the International Court of Justice. The U.S. says that's not helpful. Abbas wants some kind of support against the new right-wing government in Israel, which is taking a harsher line against Palestinians. What can Blinken offer on that? Unclear. What do ordinary Palestinians want from the United States? I asked that very question from a Palestinian woman this morning as she was crossing an Israeli military checkpoint on the way to work in Jerusalem, Majd Amro. Here's what she says. Are you kidding? I don't expect anything from America. Why not? Why not? Because they don't support us at all. They just support the Israeli side. You know, she says after the latest violence here, she thinks nothing will get better until... Israel treats Palestinians better. She was standing right before entering the turnstile of the checkpoint, and here's what she said. Here at the checkpoint, every day, it's horrible. Everything is going to be worse. Maybe if they don't stop all these things, just to treat us as humans. A Palestinian woman who spoke with our colleague Daniel Estrin, who's in Ramallah. And Daniel, I want to ask about another aspect of this. Of course, last week, a Palestinian gunman opened fire at a synagogue in Israel, killed seven people. What is the investigation revealing about that man? The police in Israel have put a gag order, but we have been investigating ourselves. Our team has been speaking to the family of that attacker. The family doesn't know why he did it. He acted alone. And this raises a lot of questions about how Israel is responding. Israel has sealed the attacker's family's home and intends to demolish it. But it wasn't the Palestinian Authority who sent him. It wasn't Hamas in Gaza. It wasn't even his own family. And this raises questions about whether Israel is carrying out a policy of collective punishment, whether that actually can prevent violence of this nature. Isn't it correct that in the last few days, the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has at least begun considering measures that would apply to Palestinians more broadly as a response to this attack? Oh, that's right. I mean, he's taken measures he wants to see, for instance, Palestinians, let's say a dishwasher in an Israeli restaurant who writes on social media somehow in support of a Palestinian attack, that that person should be dismissed from his job. He wants to see the families of Palestinian attackers perhaps be stripped of their Israeli residency rights. So a lot of different proposals now, Steve, that raise a lot of questions, even in Israeli media, about whether home demolitions of Palestinians actually prevent further attacks or even, in fact, fuel more feelings of revenge. NPR's Daniel Estrin covers the Middle East. He is in Ramallah in the West Bank today. Daniel, thanks so much. You're welcome. The Biden administration plans to end the national COVID-19 emergency declarations in May. The announcement comes as the Republican-controlled House is getting ready to vote on what it has titled the Pandemic is Over Act. GOP lawmakers have long pushed to end COVID national and public health emergencies. Joining us now is Lawrence Gostin, a public health law expert and professor at Georgetown University who's been advising the White House. Uh, Professor, the Biden administration has been under pressure to end these declarations for a while now. So given the timing, how political of a decision is this? I think they were really pushed hard in every quarter. I mean, its own FDA recently just decided to go to 
seasonal COVID vaccines um, like influenza. Congress won't give any money for next generation vaccines or drugs, and the American public has just moved on. So I think, you know, all emergencies have to come to an end, and what they want is an orderly transition and a softer landing. And that's why it's uh, till May 11th to make sure that everyone is able to adjust to what what would be some of the implications, higher prices on things? Oh, there'll be some really severe implications over time. One of the most important is our social safety net, Um, things like Medicare, Medicaid, um, the Children's Health Insurance Program, Veterans Administration benefits. Telehealth will be more difficult. We may lose our free testing and treatments. CDC will find it harder to get surveillance data. And of course, there's that all-important Title 42 um, at the southern border. So let's get into that. Title 42, the Trump-era public health order that was used to quickly turn away migrants at the border. The Biden administration tried to lift it. Courts blocked it. The Supreme Court's due to hear arguments on this next month. Professor, if there is no public health emergency, though, what will that mean for Title 42, which is a public health order? Well, you know, the Supreme Court could find it moot, but it's probably more likely that the court will just look and say, well, there is no emergency. And so it should be over. But Title 42 has always been really perverse because it's literally the last public health measure of COVID. And it's not really for public health. It's really for immigration. And so it's one of those anomalies. And at least in my field and in the international migration community, it's really abhorred um, because it treats migrants badly. It doesn't allow asylum seekers to get their day in court. But we'll have to see what the Supreme Court does. It's always a wild card. Because haven't Republicans for for a while now almost dared the Biden administration to declare no more public health emergency? So that way, uh, if he did want to lift Title 42, then there would be nothing in the way of him doing it. Yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, Title 42 has been a political football between that and public health. And yes, um, Biden has been off again, on again. It's really become, you know, raw politics without any humanity. Um, It's hard to describe how perverse our national politics has been over Title 42. And this, this could signal the end of it. I remember back in September on 60 Minutes, President Biden declared the pandemic is over. Um, now, yeah. with uh, this order being set to be lifted on in May, is the administration saying that the pandemic is really, really over? No, not at all. We've still got over 500 deaths every day, um, twice a bad flu um, season. And what I worry about most is public messaging when... CDC now asks you to wear a mask or to get a booster. American eyes might roll, and that can't be a good thing. That's Georgetown Law Professor Lawrence Gostin. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Wednesday Adams is the morbid child from the Adams Family franchise. With her stiff, buttoned-up black dress, pale skin, and long, dark braids, Wednesday has been portrayed by many actors over the years. But Lisa Loring was the first to bring her to the screen in the 1960s TV show. Lurch? Where are you, Lurch? It's me, Wednesday. 
Among her many mischievous hobbies, her character liked to play with spiders and detonate dynamite. Don't you trust me? I'm your friend. <laughs> Loring died on Saturday at age 64, according to her agent, Chris Carbaugh. He says Loring loved her time working on the show. I just think she had a blast with it. You know, she was a six-year-old kid, and, you know, she had fun on set. She liked having fun with her castmates, so it was like a game to her. In one of the most famous scenes from the show, Wednesday teaches the family's butler, Lurch, how to dance. Come on, now you try it. Six-year-old Wednesday shuffles her feet side to side and swings her arms enthusiastically, tossing her pigtails around. The dance was one source of inspiration for Jenna Ortega, who plays Wednesday in the Netflix series. I paid homage to Lisa Loring the first Wednesday Adams. I did a little bit of her shuffle that she does. You better die when I show up. Ortega's reimagining of Wednesday's dance has become a viral TikTok dance sensation of its own, of course, introducing a whole new generation to the character. Lisa's legacy will be obviously Wednesday Adams. She made that character famous and it has passed from generation to generation. Carbaugh says that as a six-year-old girl, she couldn't have known the impact that character would have on so many generations of people and that she loved meeting fans of all ages. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield discusses efforts to avert, to avert a food crisis in Somalia. It's 820. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, Broadway's Jessica Vosk pays tribute to Sondheim, Judy Garland, Elton John, and more. February 5th at Symphony Hall. CelebritySeries.org. This month, a Utah man murdered his wife and five children, and that surfaced a conversation among LDS women about power, vulnerability, and safety in their church. The husband has the power of God, and the wife doesn't. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Snow flurries are gradually taping off across the region. Some gusty winds will gradually clear overcast skies by afternoon while a partly sunny day with a high of 36. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. From the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The countries in Africa's far eastern tip are suffering, and not for the first time. Millions of people in the Horn of Africa face food shortages. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, just visited Mogadishu, Somalia, and she said the crisis could kill more people than a famine in 2011. And that is part of the story. There was an earlier famine a decade ago, and famines before that. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield remembers because she has served in various posts in Africa for years. I was working on refugee issues in 1993 as the refugee coordinator for the Horn of Africa. So I did a lot of trekking through uh, refugee camps around the region, but because I was in Kenya, uh, the Dab refugee camp is where I spent most of my time. What do you remember from that refugee camp? I remember, you know, the lack of joy in people's eyes because people were fleeing. Mothers were holding babies who had not had enough food. They were describing incidents of of rape. Many of them were kicked out by their families. But the most difficult thing I saw was watching a young girl who looked like a baby. Uh, I found out later she was two years old, die in front of my eyes. You must think about that from time to time. I do think about it from time to time. And whenever I'm in uh, refugee camps or I meet refugees. So in Kenya, I happened to meet a group of refugees who uh, had been approved for the U.S. resettlement program. And one was a family with a little seven-year-old girl who had bright, beautiful eyes, a beautiful smile. And I just knew that what was going to happen in her life was going to make a huge difference in her future. And I said to her that she was going to be the next Ilhan Omar, who had left Kenya as a refugee when she was eight years old. I discovered much later at the same time that I was serving in Kenya as the refugee coordinator. Wow. Uh, So there are possibilities there, and yet so many people uh, suffering. You named a refugee camp that you remember from 30 years ago. I'm just looking it yeah. up. The Dadaab refugee camp still exists. It's still there. The UN gives it a yeah. population of more than 200,000 people, which is the size of a, of a decent-sized city. And many of them have been there for 30 years. So what has made the problem of hunger, particularly in the Horn of Africa, so persistent? The issue of hunger has been uh, an issue for some time, but it was certainly made more dire by the war in Ukraine. It was made equally difficult by significant climatic changes. We heard when we were in Kenya that they've had five consecutive failed rainfalls. And what that means is that people cannot grow the food that they need to eat. And the sixth rainfall is scheduled to take place in the March-April timeframe, and the predictions are, are, are dire. So combine that with the war in Ukraine and then conflict that's taking place in Somalia and in the region, and you have a perfect storm of food insecurity. But I'm thinking about the long-term nature of the problem in that part of the world. I mean, the Western United States has drought right now linked to climate change, but obviously not famine. Ukraine itself has war, but not famine. Is there some structural economic problem in East Africa that causes setbacks of those kinds to lead to famine again and again and again? Well, you're dealing with conflict, so people cannot grow their 
products when they're being forced from their homes. So imagine those 200,000 refugees in Dadaab came from somewhere in Somalia where they left their homes and are unable to grow and support themselves and their livelihoods as they might normally have, have done. So that's the difference here. Ukraine was a net exporter of wheat. They still had wheat in ships and wheat in silos that were not being shipped overseas. That wheat also has affected the food insecurity that's taking place in the Horn of Africa. So you just have a more marginal economy, less connected to the global economy, with less room for error, fewer resources to draw on. That's exactly the case. People are already living subsistence lives. Anything that happens that might impact their ability to survive is almost a death notice. You said when in Mogadishu, famine is the ultimate failure of the international community. Why is it a failure of the international community? We have enough food in the world to feed people. And we have to find a way, we have to use the tools that we have at hand to ensure that we get food to people where they need it. And we can do it. So we just have to work smarter. We have to work more consistently. We have to work with much more a sense of urgency to address these food insecurity crises. And we've done some of that, and we've seen some actions by many countries, and we've seen some improvements. But as I noted in Mogadishu, it's not enough, and we can't do it all. And so I made a call of desperation to the rest of the world to join us in this fight so that we don't ever have to watch a young child die in front of our eyes. A United Nations official said in Mogadishu that it appeared that the world had sent its aid to Ukraine, understandably so, but that they were out of interest or out of money when it came to East Africa. Is that correct? You know, I, I disagree with that statement. We continue to support Somalia and other places in the world. The aid we are providing to Ukraine is new money. It is not assistance that we've taken from anywhere. And I know there's a belief among many that that is the case. And while Ukraine is a priority, everywhere else is a priority as well. And we're continuing to support the needs wherever they arise. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And it was great talking to you as well, Steve. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Tyree Nichols' beating death by a specialized police unit in Memphis has raised questions about the culture and tactics of similar units across the country. And California is the lone holdout among six states that have been ordered to find a way to cut back on their use of water from the Colorado River. It's 830. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Federal Reserve kicks off its latest policy meeting today. The Fed is expected to announce another hike in interest rates tomorrow. The White House is making plans to end two COVID-19 emergencies in the U.S. declared nearly three years ago. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. The Biden administration is moving to end the national COVID-19 emergency, as well as the public health emergency, on May 11th, saying it's seeking an orderly transition to prevent chaos in the health care system. The White House has informed Congress of its intention as House Republicans are moving to end the declarations immediately. The White House is warning that an abrupt end would sow confusion. More people have been suspended and fired in Memphis, Tennessee, as a result of this month's traffic stop and arrest of a black motorist who later died at a hospital. Two police officers have been suspended. That's in addition to the five officers who were fired and faced charges that include second-degree murder in the death of Tyree Nichols. Two EMTs and a lieutenant with the Memphis Fire Department who responded to Nichols' injuries have also been fired. Steve Mulroy is the district attorney in Shelby County. We're just looking at everybody, you know, even people that were uh, filing reports afterwards. We're making sure that we have done a comprehensive investigation. This is NPR News from Washington. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine moves closer to the one-year mark, Moscow says Russian forces will begin checking vehicles for weapons and explosives. That's according to the Reuters news agency. It says the security checks will take place in areas of Russia considered to be under a high threat level. NPR's Joanna Kikissis is in the port city of Kherson in southern Ukraine, where residents face daily Russian shelling. A missile booms as Natalia Severenyuk, a 52-year-old pharmacist, walks past a diagnostic clinic hit by a Russian rocket on Sunday. The attacks this weekend killed at least three people and injured at least 10. Severenyuk says she hears several explosions a day. Of course, I'm terrified, Severenyuk says, but I've got to stay here and keep working. People need medicine here. Russian forces occupied Kherson for months until Ukrainian soldiers liberated it in November with the help of Western weapons. Russian soldiers remain just a couple miles away on the other side of the Dnipro River on Ukrainian land they now occupy. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kherson. The death toll in Pakistan stands at 95. Following yesterday's bombing at a mosque in Peshawar, dozens of others were wounded in the blast. It took place inside a police compound. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Moore Healy wants more money to pay for an increased demand for emergency shelters and food assistance programs. She wants lawmakers to pass a supplemental spending bill to fund those efforts. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. Healy's looking for $85 million for emergency shelters, $130 million to keep nutrition assistance in place, and $65 million to keep a universal school meals program running. She says this is the best estimate for meeting the needs of children and families around the state. None of us want to see kids go without, without, without food, without meals. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've, we've talked and we'll see where that goes from here. But um, certainly it was an effort to put out what we thought was the best number we could to, to deal with that issue. The governor made her pitch to legislative leaders during a 90-minute meeting. The lawmakers couldn't say when they'll be able to take up the proposal. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Schools in Woburn are closed again today. That's as teachers there continue to strike. Negotiations were stalled yesterday after disagreements over who could be involved in the talks. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. Woburn Mayor Scott Galvin tells the Boston Globe there's a court order telling teachers to return to the classroom. Harvard's Peabody Museum is returning another Native American artifact to its people. It's transferring ownership of an ancestral Aleutic canoe to the Aleutic Museum in Alaska. The move is part of the museum's efforts to repatriate Native American artifacts. Nearly two years ago, the Harvard Institution was accused of violating the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Celtics interim head coach Joe Mazzula will lead one of the two squads in next month's NBA All-Star Game. He's headed to Salt Lake City with his assistants because Boston has the best record in the Eastern Conference. The game will be held on February 19th. Snow showers are slowly tapering off. Skies will gradually clear this morning. We'll have a mostly sunny, windy day by the afternoon. It'll be in the mid-30s. Tonight it gets really cold. We'll fall as low as 19 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny and low 30s. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. In Memphis, two more police officers have been suspended as city officials continue to investigate the death of Tyree Nichols. Last week, the five officers who were seen on video brutally beating Nichols were fired and charged with murder. They were part of a now-disbanded special unit dedicated to cracking down on street crime. For more on the tactics and culture behind these special units, I'm joined now by Paul Butler, a law professor at Georgetown University and author of the book Chokehold, Policing Black Men. Professor, is there any evidence to suggest that these special units actually deter crime or maybe lead to more prosecutions and convictions? Uh, the evidence is quite mixed. If the units actually make communities safer, maybe their rough tactics would be acceptable to some people. But we know that people in the community sometimes experience this policing as a violent occupation, and that actually undermines law enforcement. When a crime goes down in the hood, people know who did it. The way that officers make cases isn't mainly chasing down bad guys. It's kind of like what you see on Law and Order. The cops sit in people's kitchens and workplaces talking. And if your experience with the police is that they're the ones who pulled you over for no reason, or push your grandbaby against a wall, you don't want to talk to them. So are there ways then to make these special units work? We're just talking to people more than roughing them up work better? Their best practices for these units, the officers should be highly experienced and carefully selected, not based on their aggression or number of arrests made, but for their ability to work with the communities, they're supposed to 
serve and protect. And when a squad is making an arrest, there should be one commanding officer and she should be the only person giving orders. And all of that's the opposite of what happened to Mr. Nichols. He was giving confusing, contradictory commands, lying on the ground when he was already lying on the ground. Show us your hands when officers were restraining his hands. What the cops seem to have been doing is creating a narrative for the video to try to justify their violence. So, if, uh, Professor, if there's no real evidence to to know that these special units make neighborhoods safer, I mean, what type of policing would? So, President Biden called this case a test of whether we are the country we say we are. At this moment, we're the country where an American citizen guilty of no more than a traffic violation was tortured and killed on public streets by agents of the government. The problem is larger than bad Apple cops. The problem is too entrenched to be solved by reform. The violent policing that occurs in communities of color isn't consistent with public safety. It's not consistent with equal justice under the law. So A, I think if we're the country we say we are, our American spirit of innovation, our black genius, but we have to use those tools to reimagine community well-being from the ground up. Another thing, uh, Professor, we rarely see police officers fired in, in these kinds of situations. Um, these five were charged very, very quickly. What was different this time around? So what was different is that the movement for black lives has educated the country about police violence that people of color have complained about a long time. Uh, now prosecutors understand that, the public understands that, so it's easier for prosecutors to win these cases. Of course, the other difference is that these officers were African-American, and some people say that makes these charges easier because in every aspect of the, black, of the criminal justice system, black people are treated differently. Last comment, if these officers weren't in badges and uniforms, on another day, these young black men might have met the same fate as Mr. Nichols. That's Paul Butler, law professor at Georgetown University. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Seven states that rely on the Colorado River have to figure out how to use less water. Yeah, the river feeds Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Both are low after decades of drought, and the states face a deadline today to reach a new water sharing agreement or see the federal government impose one. Late yesterday, six states released a proposal to save water, but California did not join them. Alex Hager has been covering this long-running water crisis for our member station KUNC in northern Colorado, which is one of the states affected. Hey there, Alex. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How close are the states to really agreeing? Well, the fact that six of them came together and put forth this proposal, that, that stands out. These states like to talk a big talk about collaboration, but we don't often see them put that mentality into action. You know, they're trying to meet the needs of cities and farms from Wyoming to Mexico, and that is not an easy task. But at the end of the day here, it is important to remember this is not a deal. It is just a proposal. It is a suggestion for how the federal government could proceed. Well, what is in that proposal? 
Well, they put out this proposal to conserve about one and a half million acre feet of water. That is enough to supply millions of homes each year. Mm. So right now, the Biden administration is working on tweaks to the amount of water released from those big reservoirs over the next couple of years. That's Lake Mead and Lake Powell. And they asked the states to send in a proposal to help guide those tweaks one of which is accounting for evaporation. So here they're saying, look, every year we release a certain amount of water from Lake Mead down to parts of Nevada, California, and Arizona, but the amount of water drops even more just from evaporation. So if you just reduce the amount of water being released from Lake Mead by the amount that evaporates, that will help keep levels from falling even further. And that is pivotal here because if they keep dropping, they could get too low to generate hydropower that supplies millions of people. Okay, I just want to be clear on something. You said uh, one and a half million acre feet of water. An acre foot of water. Is that enough water to cover an entire acre of land one foot deep? That's how much water we're talking about here? That is correct. About the area of a football field one foot deep. And one and a half million of those. So a lot of water at stake here. Why did California say no to that plan? It's not exactly a shock that they are the lone holdout. California uses more Colorado River water than any other state, and their water rights are some of the oldest. So that means that when there's a shortage, they are going to be the last in line to lose their water. California grows a lot of the country's food. That takes a lot of water. It also has growing, thirsty cities. This proposal would cut back on the total amount of water that California receives, they responded by putting out a statement calling it inconsistent with the law of the river. And they said they would put out their own proposal for water cutbacks, one that is, quote, practical, voluntary and achievable. But they didn't offer a timeline on when that'll be out. OK, if they're putting out competing proposals, does the federal government need to solve the problem for the states? Well, it is likely that as part of this process, the federal government will step in. But, you know, it's understandable that no administration really wants to get stuck with that, telling people they have to give something up. Right now, they're looking for something that will hold together until 2026 when the current rules for the river expire. And they expect to come up with a more permanent rework of how the river is shared. Alex Hager of KUNC, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, U.S. egg prices are soaring, so people are crossing into Mexico to buy them. And your forecast, the mix of rain and snow we've seen for the last few hours is slowly tapering off. Then gra- cloudy skies gradually clear. By afternoon, it should be mostly sunny, windy, and in the mid-30s. Tonight, cloudy in the upper teens. Tomorrow, sunny and around 30. Right now, it's 33 degrees in Boston. Now, in business news, Amgen says it's laying off 300 workers in the U.S. It's unclear how the layoffs will affect its Massachusetts workforce. The biotech company is one of the largest life science employers in the state. The Boston Business Journal reports as of last fall, Amgen employed more than 430 workers at its offices in Cambridge and Woburn. The maker of Samuel Adams Boston Lager says it's changing the way it makes the beer for the first time in 40 years. The Boston Beer Company says the recipe will stay the same, but will use a different brewing process that reduces filtration, which it says makes the beer smoother and lighter. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org. And CB Team in Lexington, helping all ages overcome anxiety and OCD with a mix of science and compassion, CBTeam.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Higher prices in the United States have led many near the southern border to do their shopping in Mexico, where many goods are cheaper. But it turns out it's illegal to cross the border with food like fruit, eggs, or meat. KTEP's Angela Kacherga reports that Customs and Border Protection officials are cracking down. Hundreds of people wait in long lines at this border crossing between Juarez and El Paso, Texas. After U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers check immigration documents, they ask people if they're bringing anything from Mexico, including food. No, no food, vegetables, meats, nothing like that, no chicken eggs, nothing. CBP officers have recently started asking everyone about eggs because they've seen a spike in the number of people trying to bring them across the border. Charles Payne is the agriculture supervisor at the Port of El Paso. The main reason we're here is to prevent the entry of insects, plant diseases, and of course, animal diseases. Raw eggs can carry disease. The U.S. is already coping with its own outbreak of avian flu. That's led to a shortage of hens, higher prices, and more people trying to bring in less expensive eggs from Mexico. So the fact that we're seeing so much more, we're assuming is a direct relation to the price that they're paying in the United States. It's like crazy. Brittany Betta says she can't believe the price of eggs. She was loading groceries in her car outside a supermarket in El Paso where a family-sized carton of 18 eggs costs about $9. And so many families, you know, depend on the eggs, you know, for protein when they can't afford, like, poultry or beef or fish, you know. So, yeah, it's hard. By comparison, across the border in Juarez, eggs are about half the price. In this supermarket, there's a giant display of neatly stacked trays of gleaming white eggs. Socorro Chavez grabs one for her cart. She says eggs are cheaper here than in El Paso, but you can't take them across the border. Though eye-catching displays like this one have enticed some to try. Along the southern border, CBP has stopped more than 2,000 people from bringing eggs into the U.S. since November. That's more than four times what they saw during the same period the previous year. Individuals risk being fined up to $300. You bringing back anything with you from Mexico? Back at the El Paso crossing, CBP Agriculture Supervisor Payne says trained dogs help sniff out food people routinely try to smuggle into the country. We get a lot of bologna coming through the ports of entry, as well as things like pork chorizo, ham, lunch meats. Uh, We get a lot of fruit, uh, oranges, apples, mangoes, guavas. And avocados. CBP officers expect to see more of those coming from Mexico ahead of the Super Bowl when avocado consumption surges. People are allowed to bring them across if they remove the seed, which can harbor pests which means you better make that guacamole quickly before the avocados turn brown. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga in El Paso. This afternoon on All Things Considered, hear how a handful of states are testing a prison reform model that stresses rehabilitation over punishment. Stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just turn on the radio. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on this last day of January, the Marketplace Morning Report checks in on how folks are doing with their New Year resolutions. Coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Scott Tong is on the line to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Scott. Good morning, Rupa. Hello from Washington, D.C. Uh, so here's what I learned working on today's show at Here and Now. The African middle class has tripled in the past generation. Americans obviously want to support that. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen just went to the continent. President Biden plans to go in 2023. The U.S. wants Africans to buy American cars, American food, American banking services, all of those. But the U.S. hasn't always been there for the continent, and China has. So we're going to talk about the U.S. and Africa and its economic relationship. Uh, Up in your state, Massachusetts, uh, people, of course, are talking about a horrific case, Rupa, of a mother accused of killing her three children. It is focusing a national conversation on what's called postpartum psychosis, and we're going to talk about that. And doctors and public health experts, how do they think about gun violence and where the data are? We're going to talk to the Surgeon General on the show today. All right. Thanks, Scott. In the Africa segment, do me a favor and ask a question about fertilizer. I was there reporting on that, and it seems to be a really big issue. All right. Will do. Good day. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into morning edition. Go to WBUR.org. Snow flurries across the region are slowly tapering off, and I know it's hard to believe at this point, but we're supposed to end up with a mostly sunny afternoon. It'll also be windy and in the mid-30s. Tonight, cloudy with temperatures falling into the upper teens. Tomorrow, sunny and around 30. Right now, it's 33 degrees in Boston at 851. The credit card that talks for a good reason... Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, let's keep it upbeat by looking at a fresh economic report about the global economy from the International Monetary Fund. Let's do it this way. It says that economic growth was still weak, but... It won't be as bad as the IMF projected last fall. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has that. The IMF says global economic growth will slow this year to just under 3 percent, but it'll rise to slightly over 3 percent next year. The IMF says supply chain bottlenecks are easing and labor markets are cooling, but IMF chief economist Pierre-Olivier Gorenchot told our editorial partners at the BBC that central banks shouldn't start cutting interest rates just yet. And it would risk... Uh, losing a lot of the gains that have been accomplished in recent months in trying to control inflation and keeping inflation expectations anchored. Central banks have raised interest rates to cool the economy and snuff out inflation. The IMF expects global inflation to fall to 6.6 percent this year. There are still risks to the economic outlook, though. Any new COVID outbreaks could hold back China's recovery, and Russia's war in Ukraine could escalate. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser. For Marketplace. 
Stock index futures have turned around. Dow and Nasdaq futures are now up a tenth of a percent. S&P futures are up two tenths percent. ExxonMobil today posted its highest ever profits, nearly $56 billion in 2022, a year of high fuel prices. So far, only Apple and Microsoft made more money last year. On this last day of the first month of the year, time to check back in with what you might call the resolution economy, the money that flows from the tendency of people who resolve to improve themselves in a new year. The trick for businesses now are systems to make the good intentions stick. Here's Marketplace's Savannah Marr. At the start of the year, when many of us are focused on self-improvement, certain products can start to look like shortcuts. I even received in the mail in December a health and wellness buying guide. Christine Whelan is a professor of consumer science at the University of Wisconsin. So literally, I could just buy health and wellness. And that sounds very enticing. She says the wellness industry can usually count on a big sales bump after the holidays. That is very true. Sunil Kohli is CEO of Health Plus Incorporated, which makes dietary supplements. We always see that happening. Actually, it starts a day or two after Christmas. Coley says last January's sales were pretty weak, but they picked up this year, even with many consumers cutting back on discretionary spending. Ritual Zero Proof, which makes alcohol-free spirits, also saw strong sales despite rising prices, according to founder Marcus Seiki. No, we haven't seen any impact uh, of inflation. In fact, January hasn't been business as usual. Um, It's business as hockey stick explosion. And it's not just dry January. Spending on wellness is booming during the pandemic. According to Whelan at the University of Wisconsin, not all of that spending has been well-researched. I am really a proponent of self-betterment, and I certainly love a good spa treatment as much as the next girl, but you got to show me the data. Proving that a product's claimed health benefits are backed up by science. And for some additional... The way it can be found at marketplace.org slash crash course. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. There's a French tech company, Talus. You may have seen its brand. English speakers may have read it as Thales. Now, Talus is launching a credit card that talks. There are a quarter billion people worldwide with limited vision, which can increase a person's vulnerability to fraud. This credit card connects to a phone app that verbalizes transactions. Reporter John Lawrenson filed this report from Paris. Stephanie Cohn's white walking cane glides along a sidewalk as she navigates through a Paris suburb. Cohn lost her sight when she was 12 after a series of failed operations. Now, as an adult, for Cohn, everyday situations are often challenging, like buying a sandwich. Credit cards are not easy for visually impaired people to use because they can't always see the terminal to know where to insert their card. But the main challenge for blind people is that they can't confirm if the price the retailer keys in is accurate. Until now. In the R&D offices of tech firm Talis, Kung is here to test the company's new talking credit card. Pierre Palagion is the firm's banking personalization manager. 
Electronics in the card transmit the information displayed on the payment terminal to your smartphone. The smartphone then vocalizes that transaction through a speaker or headphones, in French, English, or a number of other languages. The transaction amount is 25 euros. Kung says this could be a very helpful tool. It's useful for visually impaired people like me to get the confirmation of the amount the cashier says we are paying. Because we're easy to fool, they can tap in any amount we wouldn't know. Thales' Palladion again. French studies show 9 out of 10 visually impaired people have been victims of shopkeeper fraud or error. A first bank in Turkey began offering this new card to its customers in January. Others in Europe and the Americas will follow soon. In Moudon, France, I'm John Lawrenson for Marketplace. And for the second time this month, workers in France are off the job and protesting a plan to raise the age of retirement there from 62 to 64. Over the next seven years, a million people turned out for the last one of these, putting new pressure on French President Macron, who's pushing this change. Our producers are Katie Barnfield, James Graham, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Garrison-Morby. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Snow flurries are gradually tapering off across the region. Then high winds will move clouds out of our skies. And by afternoon, it's supposed to be partly sunny and in the mid-30s. The clouds return tonight as temperatures fall into the teens. Colder tomorrow, right around 30 degrees, but it'll be sunny. It's 33 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at mparchitectsboston.com. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.